Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Bernard Salt. And joining me as co-host for this episode is the show's executive producer, Whitney Fitzsimmons. Hi, Whitney. Hey, Bernard. How you doing? Very well, thank you. Looking forward to this program. So am I. Thanks for letting me join you. My pleasure, my pleasure. For everyone out there listening, we thought we'd do something a little bit different for this episode. We have now come to the end of the first season. It's gone so quickly and so interesting, so fascinating. But then I probably would say that, wouldn't I? (laughs) Well, I think we both would. But we have found it to be really amazing. And firstly, we wanted to thank everyone for tuning in, listening, downloading, subscribing, sharing with your networks because we really started this podcast because this time last year, we were actually just launching a TV show, Bernard, and flash forward to a year later, and we were about to do the same TV show again, and then COVID-19 hit. And we had to do like many other businesses and pivot, didn't we? We did pivot. We are doing this entirely from our respective uh, homes, of course, learning new technology. When you really focus, uh, it's surprising what you can actually achieve. Bernard, when we started this, we were all in national lockdown, you know, thinking, okay, well, we're inverted commas all in this together and, you know, we need to take care of each other. And Genevieve Bell, she had a really interesting take on what was the outcome of that national lockdown. And let's just take a listen to what she had to say. Three months ago in Australia, at least, we were confronted with a series of forecasts about what our mortality and infection rates would look like with COVID-19. And those were disturbing at the very least, right, and terrifying at their most extreme end of what it would be like for our community and our country. What yesterday's modelling showed us from the outset, the sort of risks that Australia faced of anywhere between 3 million and potentially 20 million infections. Through a series of concerted efforts at a government level, a business level and at a societal level, Australians collectively acted and we sit three months later in a place not on any of those original projections. Uh, If there had been, as Professor Murphy described, a do-nothing environment, that was the alternative world that Australia could face. We actually changed the future based on our own action. And for me, there's something startling and striking in that lesson, that given the right impetus, we can act collectively across multiple stages to deliver a different future. I guess, Bernard, what I find so interesting is that, you know, initially we were all in this national lockdown and then we each state had different restrictions sort of lifting. I'm in New South Wales, you're in Victoria, and Victoria is currently in a lockdown. How are you, well, personally, how are you feeling? And how do you see this from your position as a demographer in light of our experience in the first lockdown? I am at heart an optimist. And I actually see the positive in this. I understand that there is incredible pain and hardship and so forth, but there is a lot of unity that has come out of this that we have learned in many respects 
to connect with each other, finding new ways, new technologies to uh, to connect with each other. I think at a neighbourhood level, um, I have certainly got to know my neighbours better. I think a turning point with regard to that was the Anzac Day experience late April, where we all went out to the end of the driveways and actually connected and had a chat. We Victorians, Melburnians in particular, have developed this thing of listening for the daily release of the number of cases and remarking as to whether that's going up or down. Uh, And it's a point of discussion. It actually brings people together. And that is what I have taken from this. I think we Melburnians uh, are generally still very united about the, uh, the situation. We're concerned about it, but still confident that uh, we will get on top of this. And we in New South Wales are watching and hoping that everything goes well for our fellow Victorians. And we're, we're also thinking, you know, we could be in the similar situations. One of the things that was so interesting in episode four was Georgie Harmon from Beyond Blue, who is in Victoria as well. She mentioned that there was a collective like slowing down and reevaluating as to what matters to us, which is exactly what you were talking about, Bernard. Look, I think this collective slowing down, which has been forced upon us, has also forced many of us to reevaluate the way we work, the way we live, and the way we're connecting with others. Um, and it's really brought into sharp focus what really matters most to us and what we should prioritise in our lives, what we value the most. And I think the the corollary of that is we've seen a sense of social solidarity and community cohesion that we haven't seen in this country, a sense of pulling together for the common good. Um, People are looking out for their neighbours, sometimes meeting their neighbours for the first time. They're practising random acts of kindness. Um, And I think there's a sense of understanding that for our communities to flourish, we really need to look after everyone, uh, particularly the most vulnerable. Georgie, what would be your top three tips for mental wellness in challenging times? The first is the magic ingredients of good mental health and well-being, and that is connection, sleep, diet, exercise, and setting a routine. The second is to really reset your expectations. You don't have to emerge from the pandemic with a six-pack and having learnt 13 languages. The third one being self-care. Self-care is not a slogan. It's actually an act of self-replenishment. You cannot pour from an empty cup. Well, that was Georgie Harmon, the CEO of Beyond Blue, speaking there. And uh, Bernard... How's your six-pack going? You're going to come out of lockdown with a six-pack? I don't think so. <laughs> I'm trying to flatten my curve, so hey. <laughs> I have, um, prior to going into the uh, into the lockdown, I was riding my bike, you know, once or twice a week, perhaps on a bike path, nothing too adventurous. Uh, but I'm now riding my bike twice a day when regulations permit. And just watching my local bike path, if you know that you only have this amount of time per day, then uh, we Melburnians are out there making every moment count. Just a little bit fitter. And maybe is there a little bit of lycra going on there, Bernard, when you're out there on the bike? <laughs> no, no lycra at all. I'm a shorts and T-shirt sort of guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> you're not a mammal? <laughs> no, I'm a middle-aged male in shorts and T-shirts. I'm not sure what the acronym is for that. One of the more interesting comments that I think our guests made was a comment made by Deb Yates. This was around remote working and mental health. One thing that has really surprised me actually over the last few months is the feedback from our people in 
just how they see their leaders as humans first. And that's come about from seeing more of their lives in the background. Seeing the bookcase. Yeah, seeing their dogs, seeing their kids, seeing them in clothes that are more casual, seeing them being more like them. Mm. Um, And so it's been quite fascinating, just the humanness that's been created. It's redefined for me around what um, connection is and and what a one-on-one meeting is. You got a different perspective, like the, the human side of people that you're working with, and not just bosses, but colleagues as well. You get to see a snippet of their lives. And again, she said that that brought us closer. And again, I I tend to agree with that. Yeah, I do too. And there's something that Genevieve Bell mentioned in her conversation with you, COVID hair. And I can tell you that I have had a lot of COVID hair in the last three months. Um, I've even done some meetings with COVID hair. I'm not sure about you, Bernard. Any COVID hair going on in your household? (laughs) Well, I haven't worried so much about COVID hair. I just sort of push it around where it needs to go, I suppose. (laughs) But I will say that uh, I have taken an extraordinary interest in people's um, libraries, their rooms. So you see these experts that appear on television. And uh, I'm not listening to what the expert says, but I'm looking at their room. So you're judging? I am very much judging. And in fact, there is a Twitter <laughs> handle called RoomRater at Rate My Skype Room, and it enables people to rate an expert's background. So the orderliness of their library books, the quality of their background lighting, they're given extra points if they have a piece of artwork and extra, extra points if they have a pot plant. When you put all of that together, you get a 10 out of 10. One of the other things that's changed is the greeting. Really, the handshake is gone. And you were saying the elbow bump is a bit awkward and weird. And you were you were advocating for bring back the tip of the hat, I think it was, Bernard. Tip of the hat or the nod. The nod. The nod is fine. I have seen people do a single jazz hand. Oh, jazz hand. I love a jazz hand. Uh, one and a half metres apart. I don't like the elbow bump. It looks like you're a footballer lining someone up to give them a hip and shoulder (laughs) like you're going to. It just seems awkward. There's plenty of others. You know, there's the hand clasp, that sort of praying stance, Mm -hmm. and then uh, holding your palms on your chest. So there's plenty of greeting options, but I think we'll probably, while the pandemic is still going, I think um, jazz hand, single jazz hand is where where I'm going to settle for the time being. I think I'm going to join you in the single jazz hand, Bernard. Whitney, one of the big issues from the lockdown was the way in which businesses have pivoted in response to the pandemic. And a good example of that is the uptake in telehealth. This came out in a comment made by Meredith Makem in our first episode. You know, telehealth particularly is something that we're seeing clinicians now turning to and embracing in huge numbers. And it's certainly something that's now coming as Uh, a regular addition to my practice as a GP. Um, All of my colleagues and many people in medicine and other clinical professions are embracing the the telehealth measures particularly. So if you look at the numbers, it's it's really amazing. I mean, telehealth measures were actually introduced in 2011 in Australia. And in the first nine years that we had them, there were less than a million consultations billed altogether. And in the seven weeks since they 
changed those offerings for, for telehealth measures in early March this year, there were close to 7.5 million services delivered in telehealth. So a huge increase in um, people actually using telehealth as a way to deliver care to people in their homes. Whitney, I hate to admit this, but I didn't even know exactly what telehealth meant until this particular program. I have no use for it or no experience with it, but it seems to be taking off like wildfire. Had you heard of telehealth or had you had that experience prior to uh, hearing this episode? Look, I, I would say that I'd heard of it, but I wasn't really familiar with it like yourself. But I can see the value of it and I think it's really great you know, the numbers have climbed exponentially over the the pandemic. So clearly the service is needed. Another interesting point was made by Mark Britnell, the health expert from London, who talked about how important a resilient health system was to the economy. Having a well-funded, well-staffed, well-equipped health system enables you to come out of uh, economic recession just that little bit quicker. Clearly, many parts of the economy have had to close to ensure that their nation's health systems weren't um, completely swamped uh, in terms of a tsunami of COVID need. So if we have a more resilient health system... We have a more resilient nation and by turn or in turn, we have a more resilient economy. So I think more than ever now, countries are rediscovering the adage that health is wealth. He was making the point about the the linkage between a good health system and economic resilience. I thought that was a really good point. Yeah, uh, health is wealth. I think that really encapsulates the corollary between or the connection between uh, a healthy health system, as it were, and a healthy economy because you need to have both sectors to function well because they feed off each other. I I think that is very much uh, a learning from the pandemic. The economic output, even of a country like Australia that has not been impacted as severely, certainly as, say, the UK or the, or the US, let's say that the impact on our GDP is, you know, 5%. If that could be mitigated, if our planning going forward could lessen the likelihood of that happening again by a greater investment in health and in resilience systems, then that is a good investment. Health is indeed wealth uh, when you look at it like that. Yeah, absolutely. And another area of wealth for the country is our agriculture. Australia is really well known for its agricultural sector. And we had some really interesting comments from Emma Germano from the Victoria Farmers Federation about the resilience of the farming sector. The agricultural supply chain is a very resilient sector. It's not uncommon for farmers to lose a season because of weather variability or bushfire or drought despite the fact that there have been pockets that have been really hard hit, as Robert mentioned. You know, if you're an avocado grower, it turns out that people eat a lot more smashed avocados in cafes than what they do at home. Um, we do know how to bounce back and, and that pivoting and, and the managing of um, what can sometimes be dire circumstances is not new for the farming industry. Um, we've been managing those type of impacts for, for generations and um, this, is, this is not really different from that. 
I think Emma's point is well made. Certainly if you're on the land, then you have to learn to deal with ups and downs. And the agricultural sector has had more downs than ups over the last um, six or seven years, and particularly with the drought. The interesting thing here is that not only were there bushfires in January of this year, uh, but also in January and February, there was the coming of the rains. And, and that has had a positive impact on the demand for agribusiness product in Australia. And then also the whole hoarding movement had another stimulatory effect on the demand for agribusiness product. We then ran into issues around stockpiling and logistics and so forth. But, um, you know, that's, that's the nature of agribusiness, I think, managing the, uh, the ups and downs. Just moving on, we looked at the role that technology might be playing, particularly with the introduction of online learning. We spoke with Yasaday at uh, Rudy Hill High School, who is teaching her class, secondary school class, via Zoom. And the technology has been able to give students access to experts around the world, academic research in a secondary context. One of our key roles is, especially as a humanities teacher, is to teach students how to break down that content and to seek and access credible sources in their writing and in their work. Um, there's global collaboration happening between educators as well. That means that we can have virtual excursions, virtual site studies, uh, just in terms of what technology lets us do. She made the really insightful point that many of the quieter, more introverted students seem to be getting a better go of it, better access, more confidence by working online. And that's right. I think the technology point, Bernard, is a really, really good point to make because we've seen what technology can do. And could you imagine actually having this situation without Zoom or, you know, the technology to be able to work remotely, to run classes remotely? And it's also given other people opportunities that they probably wouldn't have realized had this not happened. And one of the guests that we spoke to in our last episode was Matt Moran, the the chef. He had to close down his restaurants. Um, some of them were still open. They were doing takeaway, which was, you know, another pivot for him. But he also started doing online cooking classes through Zoom and, and various platforms. Uh, it really dawned on me quickly how bad my friends could cook. Um, you know, one guy left in the middle of it to go and get a lemon because he forgot. And then that just sort of started me thinking, you know, how can I make this and monetize it? You know, I partnered with uh, Harris Farm for a little bit and we were doing Friday nights, you know, live cooking classes with Matt and you could just get sent a box of box of fruit and veg and the ingredients and, and cook along. And and uh, and then I started doing a lot of private ones for different people, you know, uh, businesses that, you know, wanted to keep their, their staff close. I did one for 400 people one night uh, live is where, you know, we sent out what the ingredients were and then uh, and then I got on live on, on Zoom or whatever whatever it was and then just went ahead with it. And I've, I've probably done a good 15 of them since lockdown. So it's, it's been keeping me busy, which has been a lot of fun. I love that example. I kind of expected that Matt would actually pivot his very high-end restaurant business to deliver takeaway. A lot of businesses did that. What I hadn't thought of was actually taking that one step further and uh, for him to develop online cooking classes. 
Just one other point I wanted to make around the food. I thought uh, Emma Germano made the very uh, interesting point about how consumer preferences have changed in in lockdown. And this was her point that people... I know where you're going with this. <laughs> people are eating less avocados at home. People are more likely to eat an avocado in a restaurant, apparently, smashed avocado with crumpled feta, but they're less likely to do that at home. However, I would challenge that and say that I would have thought that eating an avocado does not require a lot of preparation, just cut it in half and then you smash it and eat it. So I don't quite uh, get that. So since our last episode, I have found out that the avocado is actually, it, a, it's it, a berry. Is it? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a berry. Okay. Well, yeah. I, had, I, didn't, I didn't know that. We're coming to the end of the program, but before we go, we wanted to just touch on um, looking at the future when we spoke to Matthias Hawkes. He joined us from Vienna. He mentioned the world is moving away from pure globalization to something he coined glocalization. Globalization in its old way is over. You know, the old globalization 3.0, like we call it, the idea of higher and higher efficiency with global value chains. So you produced 1,500 little parts of a product in China, transported it to Europe and made a car. And we can see that in a fragile world, in a world where you have phenomenons like the coronavirus that will not work again. We need another kind of globalization. We call it the glocalization local and global in one word. So the production depths in the countries will be higher in the future. So we have to rearrange the global value change. That is one important point, but that's only one thing. All the other things about the workspace... I'd change. not heard of that before. Had you heard of that before? No, I hadn't. It's the fusion of globalization and localization, and it's a very popular concept these days. I think they call it a portmanteau word, where you take a bit of one word and a bit of another word and ram them together. So glocalization. And I like it because I think it certainly does encapsulate the spirit of the times, the zeitgeist, uh, if you like. This is the idea that instead of being a globalized society, we take the best elements of a globalized economy and we create a localized environment. And we've all localised in the sense that we're working from home, orientating to shops and services in our local area, exercising in our local area, concerned about supply chains that are fully contained within our local economy. And so I loved his term. I wish I had a thought of it, glocalisation, so I can't claim it. But uh, what it does is take the best of our global economy and put it together with local behaviours and local interests and local concerns. And you could say, well, really, the 2020s, the post-COVID world, I think this was his point, is going to be shaped by this issue of or this idea of glocalization. Aside from the word glocalization, Bernard, you just used one of my other favourite words, and that is zeitgeist. I love a zeitgeist. <laughs> Well, I love his art, guys. I do too. Speaking to Matthias Hawkes, who is a uh, German-speaking Austrian, then I was supposed I was getting in the groove by introducing another German word, Zeitgeist. I'm looking, I'm looking. I was looking for ways to put in Schadenfreude and Gesundheit, but I couldn't. 
All right. Well, that's all for the program. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with season two in a few weeks and we look forward to you joining us then. But for now, thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Whitney. And thank you for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.